We are in part three today of this series. If you got some notes, wave them at me just so I can see that uh, you're, you got them. Okay, good, this morning. We, we love taking notes, and uh, we believe that, I don't know about y'all, but I, I have a failed memory often, and, and so writing it down for me is a way to, if I can see it, read it, write it, it helps to retain it. And how many know you don't become more like Jesus by knowing more of the Bible, you, know, you become more like Jesus by doing more of the Bible? Thank you for two amens. You become more like Jesus when you do more of the Bible. And so we always strive within everything that we do to uh, take a moment and, and, and really when we're preaching to try to make it as practical as possible to apply it to our day, daily life. Because here's my, here's my philosophy on preaching. If what I preach on Sunday doesn't help you on Monday, let's just close the doors. If what happens here on Sunday doesn't impact the way you live on Monday, then why waste two hours? Man, I'd love to go fishing right now. I don't know about y'all. Y'all, y'all with me? Okay, don't, don't act like you're more religious than me. Shut your mouth. I mean, you're, y'all are like, no, I'd be here no matter what. No, you wouldn't. It, because the truth is, we want to meet with Jesus, right? And we want Jesus to change us from the inside out. And, uh, and one of the ways that he does that is through his word, and so we want to take God's word and apply it to our lives. And so uh, we, we want to interact with the word and, and find that. Last week, I, I, I mean, just encouraging, and thank you. You were very responsive. I appreciate it. But I believe a great message is a positive feedback message, meaning that you are not sitting idle in this, that you have a responsibility as we do to prepare for Sundays. Do you know that you have the same responsibility on Sundays? How many of you expect our worship team to come up here on Sundays and be prepared? Raise your hand. How many of you expect on Sunday mornings for me to be prepared to preach? Raise your hand. How many of you expect for yourself to come on Sundays and be prepared? Not as many hands. Why is that? You have a responsibility to come prepared to hear from the Lord just as much as I have a responsibility to come and share from the Lord. And so today, I, I, I hope that you come expecting to receive from the Lord and expecting for God to speak to you. Amen. And so uh, I encourage you at any point in the message where something is good or something resounds with you for you to let me know and to give me a, a come on, a preach it white boy, a let's go, just stand up and just nod at me. Then, then I will know that, that this is hitting home. And uh, Daniel chapter 4 is an incredible chapter. And uh, before I preach Daniel chapter 4, let me just real quick catch you up to where we're at so far, the book of Daniel is in uh, the prophet section of the Bible. Now, the Bible is not chronologically. Uh, a lot of the books are put in sections. There's historical sections. There's the Psalms and the Proverbs section. And then there's kind of a prophetic section where Daniel is in. You'll see it in Ezekiel and Daniel. And it's not a sin to look in the table of contents. Just to let you know. If you've got to find it in the table of contents, that's not a sin. But you can go to Daniel chapter 4, and that's where we are. Daniel chapter 4, Daniel, Daniel is made up of 12 chapters. First six are, are more historical and practical. And then the last six are very uh, prophetic, meaning they speak of days to come that haven't come yet. And, uh, but the great thing about Daniel, though, is because it's prophetic, it also speaks of really where we're at right now in 2014. So it's actually very practical to today. And so in Daniel chapter 1, if you weren't here for part 1 or part 2, in Daniel chapter 1, we, we meet some characters that are in this story. Daniel, 
who's a 16-year-old Jewish teenager, and three of his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three guys are the cream of the crop. They're great, smart guys. Um, And the Babylonians come into Jerusalem and capture them. Anybody seen the movie Taken? They literally take these guys and bring them back to Babylon. And so in one day, these Jewish boys who love Jesus were smart and good-looking. The next day, they're, they're no longer with their parents. They're no longer with their family. And now they're in a foreign culture that worships foreign gods, that has a foreign language. Everything's different. But the king of Babylon, his name is King Nebuchadnezzar, and he wants these guys to serve him. And so he puts them through three years of Babylon University to teach them all of the Babylonian culture and languages and literature. He teaches them all these things with the whole ideal of making them like him. Well, these guys, are, they love Jesus. And they, have, they, they had some incredible parents that instilled the Jewish cultures of loving God, serving others. And so these guys stand up to that. And they say, we're not going to do those things. We're, we're going to continue to love Jesus in the midst of this. And really this whole series, if you could really boil this whole series down, the reason we're in this series, it's because we want to answer this question. As culture shifts around us, which I think we would all agree that culture around us is shifting, that the values of your mom and dad and grandparents are not the same values today. How many of you would agree with that? The way that schools were back in the 60s, 70s, and maybe even 80s are not the way schools are now. That so much of our culture in the beginning of especially just the United States was built on the foundation of the Bible, God's word, and uh, honoring God. And now in 2014, it's the furthest from that. So we are right now in this year and age experiencing a culture shift. But the big question that we got to ask is how do we as Christians thrive in a culture that is against God? How do you do that? How can you as a Christian who loves God stand strong in the midst of an ungodly environment? And those are the questions that we've been answering over these past couple of weeks. And so in, in chapter one, the boys get taken hostage. They get given not only a new, a new location, but they get given new names, which that's one of the first thing culture is gonna wanna do. They're gonna try to name you and give you a new name. And, uh, and so that's why it's so important for you to know your identity in Christ. You have to know your identity in Christ. Then last week we talked about how we were gonna be confronted with culture's greatest test, which culture's greatest test is who are you going to worship? Are you going to worship God when culture shifts? Or are you going to go and worship, really worshiping the devil, or even worshiping self when it comes to the culture shifting? And today we're looking at Daniel chapter 4. And I believe really, out of all the six messages, because we're going to preach three more after this, I think this is the toughest to preach. And I'll tell you why. Because last week we talked about culture's greatest test. Today I want to talk about culture's greatest sin. What is our culture right now? What is its greatest sin? And I'll tell you what it is. Pride. Pride is our culture's greatest sin. Well, you would go, well, isn't murder the greatest sin? Or isn't adultery the greatest sin? Or isn't, you know, a different kind of lifestyle and all the sexual immorality, isn't that the greatest sin? No, because here's the truth. Those are the fruit of the root. And the root sin is pride. Because pride at its core is me. I want what I want. 
And so murder, guess what murder is? Murder at its root is pride. Adultery at its root is pride. So today, I don't want to deal with the fruit. I don't want to deal with murder and adultery and all that kind of stuff. I want to deal with the root. Because if you can deal with the root, you get good fruit. Amen? And so we're going to deal with the root today, which is pride, which it's going to hurt. I can just tell you that right now because this message hurt me. And so Daniel chapter 4, if you're there, say I'm there. So I know, okay, if you're not there, say hold on. One, I'll hold on for you. Okay, time's up. All right, Daniel chapter 4. We're going to read in uh, these first three verses. So this is what's going to happen. In, in Daniel chapter 4, we're going to catch up with King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar in these first three verses is actually, it's kind of weird because uh, in these first three verses, King Nebuchadnezzar now loves the Lord. He's turned his heart over to the Lord. And so what's actually happening is you're actually seeing something where they show you something uh, on the front end, but then they're going to back up and show you kind of like the backstory of what's going on. So here's the, here's the first part. The first part is that he's turned his heart to the Lord, and then we're going to find out how he actually ended up turning his heart to the Lord. But King Nebuchadnezzar is a wicked king, and let's go. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, all nations, all languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty is his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generations to generations. This is what I want you to look. If you look at right in the middle of the end of verse 1, he says, Peace be multiplied to you. If I could give this sermon a, a second title, it would be Culture's Greatest Sin, and then my second title would be In Time Insanity. In Time Insanity. See, what King Nebuchadnezzar is saying, he, say, he says, I want you to be peaceful. I want there to be prosperity in your soul. It's, it's where we get the word shalom. Shalom is a word for peace. And so he says, I want peace to be multiplied to you. Now, here's the problem. Nebuchadnezzar, in just a minute, he's going to show you how he actually got insane. And I think if we were honest and look around all the stuff that's going on in our culture, we'd say it's a little insane. There's some insanity going on in our culture right now. There's no peace. And when you talk to people, rarely people have peace. Now, let me just clarify real quick about peace. People have a very misconstrued view on peace. See, most people think peace is the absence of problems, but that's not the case. Because if you look in the stories throughout the scripture, some of the mightiest men of God had the hardest of lives, but yet had peace. Peace is not the absence of problems. Peace is the calmness and the conviction and the confidence of your soul in the midst of problems. So you can have peace and all hell going on around you. So don't subscribe to the fact that the only time you can have peace is when everything's peaceful. That's not the case. You can have peace in your soul even though everything around you can be absolutely crazy. So my desire with this message today is that we would have peace on the inner parts of our soul, that our soul would be at rest and at peace. And if we're honest, I think there's a lot of insanity that's going on even on the inside of us, and it's because of pride. Pride causes 
insanity. And this is going to be, I, I really feel like even this message right here is a prophetic warning to our church, but also to our city, but also to our country. That we need to have peace in our land. Now, I want to talk about pride, and I want us to look at the story of King Nebuchadnezzar and what happens. So now I want us to do, we're going to actually do kind of like a flashback. And y'all ever seen like Lost or something? They show something way far, and then they come back, and then they go, and you're like, where are we? I don't know where I'm at. Okay, I'm going to try to help you. We're going to go back now. So King Nebuchadnezzar, what you just saw, he was saved. How did he get there? Okay, here's how he got there. Now verse 4, okay? Read with me in verse 4. Y'all with me? I don't want to lose you. Verse 4 says, I, now Nebuchadnezzar sharing what happened to him. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I'm going to give you some pride warning signs from the life of Nebuchadnezzar. How many of you know that God's blessed America? Y'all know that? Y'all know we have a blessed nation. We are a blessed nation. And the reason that God, I believe God's made us one of the most blessed in prosperity and in wealth is, is not just so that we would be blessed, but so that we would be a blessing. But there's something that happens when you get blessed that we can get like King Nebuchadnezzar and we live at ease. We kick back in the lazy boy and life becomes about us. My house, my palace, my place, my stuff. And you're going to see this in King Nebuchadnezzar. God's blessed him. And a lot of times what ends up happening is that when we get into a place where we're blessed, our relationship with God dwindles. Here's the warning that I have for us. Can we be a prosperous people and still be close to God? Because according to the life of our nation, if we're a blessed people, we're far from God. And if you watch people, some of the people who are the closest to God are the people who have the least, not the most. Would you say that's true? People who have the least seem to appreciate what, it's crazy. You walk into homes of people who have everything and it's insanity. You walk into homes where people have nothing and it's peaceful and joyful. And you wonder, what's going on here? Because the truth is, it's never about materialism. It's about their relationship with the Lord. But here's my prayer for me and for you, is that we could be a people that God could bless us, but we could still be close to the Lord. That we don't allow God's blessing to get us to a place where we are at ease now. And the only time we talk to God is what I call fire alarm prayers. It's like, oh God! We're like, pull the lever. God, where are you? Well, I was, I was where you were the last time you pulled the lever. That instead, though, that we would be in constant communion, in communion with the Lord. So let's, let's talk about our first pride warning sign. Here's the first one. When we're self-sufficient instead of God-dependent. When we're self-sufficient instead of God-dependent. Uh, this one's personal for me because I know I'm not always God-dependent. And do you know what shows that you're not God-dependent? Your prayerlessness. Your prayerlessness. Our prayer lives show more about our relationship with God than we even realize. And, and how many of you know this? When chaos increases, your prayers increase. 
But when chaos decreases, your prayers decrease as well. How many of you would say that's, that's true? That's true for me. Life's crazy. Things are going on. I, I, you know, I, for me personally, my relationship with God was at its highest point when my son was in the hospital. Just how it was. You know why? I needed him more than ever. But when things get out and things get good and everything's okay, the, the prayer level goes down. God, I pray that we would be people that we're constantly in prayer before the Lord and it doesn't take trouble for us to cry out to the Lord. I hope that it doesn't take chaos and insanity for us to cry out to the Lord. And, and here's, here's another kind of prophetic warning. Can we stay God-dependent when everything is okay? Because I know you'll be God-dependent when everything's bad. I know that. Because guess what? We get the phone calls the most at church. We, don't get, we rarely get phone calls going, hey, pastor, just want to call you. Everything's great. Awesome. Marriage is doing great. Kids are doing awesome. This is just go, it's going great. What do we get the phone calls on? A marriage is falling apart. This is going on and this is going on. And listen, I'm not, we, we want those phone calls. We want you to call us, but I just want you to know that's the majority of the time when people, guess when they come to church? When their life is in shambles. Things are going to pot. When things are going, how many of you know after, after uh, the 9-11 hit and the, um, the Twin Towers fell, do you know that churches were more, there was more attendance in churches in those six months after 9-11 than in the history of the world in that time? Why? Because it was just chaos was ensuing and everybody, where do people go? They go to God. God, what's going on? And so my prayer really for us, if we look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar, is that we would be God-dependent even when everything is okay. And how do we do that? How do you do that? You pray. You stay on your knees. I know um, one of the things here at the church that we, we do every year, and we will do it again in January of 2015, is we're a church of three campuses which is crazy for the size of our church with three other churches and uh, constantly trying to, to be a light in our city. And, and every time I drive up onto this property, I think about, God, this was you. Like, I'm not that smart. Pastor Bubba's not that smart. Like, none of our guys went to college, so we're definitely not that smart. And yet, God, you just continue to bring increase in favor with things that are just outside of the norm. And, and I've always got to stay at that place where I'm like, God, this is, this is you. You're doing this. This isn't anything in our, in our hands. The favor that you give us and the things that you do through this church is because of you. It's not because of us. And one of the things that we, we love doing every year is at the first of the year, and if, if you're here, I hope you'll, you'll be here at the first of the year, but we set aside 21 days to pray and fast and seek the Lord. We do this every year. We've done this for a long time. And we always come to, together as a church and we pray for certain things and we, we seek the Lord and we push the plate away and we say, God, this is you. Why in January? Because it's the beginning of the year. And what, what a better way to set the pace of the rest of the year than to pray and to fast. Hey, it's the same reason you come to church on Sunday. You know why? It's the beginning of your week. 
So guess what you're doing? You're setting Sunday to set up for the rest of the week. It's the reason why we tithe. Why? Because it's the first 10% we make. It's the first. There's something about God giving God our first and our best. Giving God our first and our best. Too often we give God our leftovers. But God wants our first and our best. And I believe one of the ways that we do that is by continually coming to the Lord in prayer. That's why we encourage people to spend time with the Lord even in the mornings. Even if you're on your way to work, cutting everything off or turning on some worship music and spending time with the Lord, setting aside your day to spend with him because God wants to speak to you, because God wants to set the, the thermostat of how that day goes. Because it may be a crazy day, but what happens if you have peace in your soul for the rest of the day, even if all chaos is going on? And that comes as we continue to put, bring ourselves to our knees and ask the Lord to come and meet with us. And we want to continually be God-dependent. Every Sunday morning, you may not know this, every Sunday morning there is a group of people that meet in a room here on Sunday mornings and they pray for you. And they pray for me and they pray for our team and they pray for our worship team and they pray over this service. You know why? Because this service is It's nothing if God doesn't show up. Y'all understand that, right? I'm just saying words. If God doesn't show up, but if he shows up, anything can happen. That means I can preach a bad message and someone still gets changed because God does what only he can do. Y'all with me? So we constantly want to have prayer being something that drives and fuels this church, fuels our lives, but a lot of times that doesn't happen because we're self-sufficient instead of God-dependent, and we realize a lot of that through prayer. Now, I want, I want to show you, go and look in verse 22, because in between verse 4 and verse 22, Nebuchadnezzar is going to have another dream. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, in chapter 2, he had a dream, and Daniel told him exactly what the dream was, and I told him exactly what it meant. Well, in, in chapter 4, he has another dream. And this dream is a dream of a tree. He dreams of this tree, and this tree is bearing fruit, and it's an incredible tree, and it's awesome, and it's blessing people, and it's an, just a huge, massive tree. And then all of a sudden, though, in this dream, this tree gets chopped down. It gets chopped down all the way to the stub, there's still, the, the stump of it is still left with the roots, but the rest of it has been chopped down. And he's, he's wrestling over this dream. What does this dream mean? And so King Nebuchadnezzar does what he does, and he brings all of his astrologers and magi- magicians and all these guys in. He goes, guys, what's this dream about? And like always, they go, I don't know. And so finally, you would think he would get this by now. Hey, let me call Daniel. He interpreted the last one. Let's find out. So he brings Daniel in, and Daniel says, I can tell you exactly what this dream means. Now catch up with us in, in verse 22, and we're going to see what this, uh, what this tree means. See, what King Nebuchadnezzar thought it meant was that he thought he was the tree, and he thought that when it got cut down, it would be what all of his enemies got, that God was cutting down all of King Nebuchadnezzar's enemies. But that wasn't the interpretation. Verse 22, it says this. Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar, it's you. You, O king, you're the tree who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heavens and your dominions to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree, destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Now watch this. Bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass, 
of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods, which is seven years, seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is the decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king. Now watch this, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be made with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven years of time will pass over you till you know, watch this, that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Now I want you to notice a couple of things real quick here. What's happening is that King Nebuchadnezzar is taking credit for everything. He's taking credit for his kingdom. He's taking credit for his, his army. He's taking credit for everything that he's done. And so God, through Daniel, tells King Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree and that you are getting cut down. Now notice where he cuts it down, though. Notice he doesn't uproot it from the roots. He cuts it to the stump, which means this. You need to listen to this. God always gives us a place to repent and come back to him. He always does. He always leaves something there for us to return back to him, which you're going to see in a little bit Nebuchadnezzar actually does. But he does cut him down. He cuts his kingdom down and he says, listen, because you've been prideful, you're going to turn into an ox. Now this had to be the craziest sight ever. You're going to grow feathers. Your nails are going to be long. You're going to go and eat grass. And not only is it going to be for a week, it's not seven days or seven months. It's seven years. Seven years, the king, you will go and you will go eat grass until there comes a day where you acknowledge that this is all God and not you. And so my second warning sign of pride, look at this, is this, is when we give ourselves the credit instead of thanking God. See, the right way for us to live is to be thankful, is to have a thankful perspective. But yet King Nebuchadnezzar was not thankful. He did not recognize that everything was God's. He recognized that everything was his. And because it was his, God had to cut him down and drive him to this place where he was a beast in the field. Now, I, I, think, I think we should be thankful all the time. And, and I'll be honest with you, if there was any part of this message that was probably the most convicting, it would be this part for me. Because I think if there's anything that I am prone to, and maybe some of you are, are like me, is I'm prone to see the negative before I see the positive. Always. I always. If I'm looking at something, instead of seeing everything that's going great, I'm seeing the one thing that's not going right. Any, anybody like that? Please don't leave me alone. Okay, me and Sharon. Okay, good. There's more of you that are quiet ones. All right. Um, but I, I'm, I'm very quick to, to judge things before I, I, I give them credit for what they've done. And I do this on my boys. I do this on my wife. I do this in my job. I do this in a lot of areas where instead of being grateful and thankful for what I have, I, I'm, I'm always reflecting on what I don't have or what I'm missing out on. And, and there's something about us being grateful and thankful that continues to drive peace into our hearts. And one of the quickest ways for you to get bitter and for you to get angry and for you to live a life that is insane is to get ungrateful. Notice this. Marriages don't start with divorce. You know what they start with? Ungratefulness. 
Because as soon as I'm not grateful for you, then my eyes start wandering. Right? I'm not grateful for my husband anymore. And so now I'm, I'm wandering trying to find it in other places. It never starts. It starts with ungratefulness. Yet again, remember, this is pride warning signs. Pride is the essence of everything. I'm always amazed at, at athletes. If you ever see these athletes that are like seven foot and they can dunk a basketball and they get paid like $40 million and they're like bragging. I'm thinking, what do you have to brag about? Like, you didn't make yourself seven feet. Like, that was God. That was like, you could have been five foot two, all right? But you were seven foot. And God just happened to give you the ability to be able to put this ball in a hole and you make $40 million. You should be thanking God more than any of us. Okay? Isn't this the truth? I mean, I can't help it that I'm like 5'10 and barely anything, all right? I'm not making $40 million preaching. Um, but these guys that are, are, have these supreme abilities, and now, listen, I'm not saying that they didn't work hard for it, but can I tell you that? That even God gave them the ability to work hard for it. Everything that we have is God-given. Everything. Our height, our looks, our, our energy, our, our, our health, Everything that we have is God's, and so everything that we have, we have an opportunity to be thankful for, and if we're, for, if we're all honest and we put our chips on the table, I think we're a lot more ungrateful than we are grateful. We speak about our kids more in an ungrateful way often than we do in a, in a grateful way. We, we speak of different things in our jobs. You know, we, we, we're not thankful for our jobs, and yet forgetting that there's a lot of people out there who don't have a job. You know what I mean? We have dirty clothes everywhere. Guess what that means? That means people are still alive in your house. Get dirty dishes. You know what that means? You ate. That's what it means. You got a dirty house. You know what that means? Your kids are having a lot of fun. All right? What, what would happen if we were to switch perspectives now and change it into a, put a lens on that's, looking through the lens of God, being grateful and thankful for everything that God's given me instead of always wanting to take the credit for ourselves. You know what I mean? I want to show you this verse. This verse is very convicting for the time and age that we live in right now. 2 Timothy 3. Look at this. 2 Timothy 3 says this. But understand this, that in the last days, are we living in the last days? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. In the last days, there will come times of what? What? Okay, so any, there's, if you need to have peace, it's right now. Because God is telling you in the last days there will be difficulty. Just letting you know. I know I don't get a lot of amens on that one. But I'm just telling you. In the last days there's going to come difficulty. And watch what, why there's going to be difficulty. For people will be what? Lovers of who? What is another word for that? What? Pride. Pride. They're going to be lovers of self. Look what else they're going to be lovers of. What? Money. They're going to be what? Hey, there it is. Proud. Arrogant. Abusive. Disobedient to their parents. Now look at this next one. What does it say? Ungrateful. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. If, if you were to write a top 10 list of the worst sins, let me ask you this. 
If you had to write a top 10 list of the worst sins, would ingratitude be in your top 10? I doubt it. I doubt it. Why are we so ungrateful? Well, verse two told us why. We are lovers of self. You know why you're ungrateful? Because you only care about yourself. That's why we're ungrateful. I've shared this a number of times. It's what I like to call cat and dog theology. For those that are lovers of cats, you'll like this one. See, a cat says this. My owner feeds me, loves me, takes care of me, cleans up after me. I must be God. A dog says, my owner feeds me, loves me, takes after me, cleans up after me. He must be God. See, the problem is a lot of us think that we, we subscribe to cat theology. That's, that's like, that, that belongs in hell, okay? That belongs in hell. That you must be God. You're not. We should subscribe to dog theology. That's why dogs are so much better. Dog theology is dogs clean up after you. You clean up after them. That you must be God. How many of you know when you come home, your cats don't wait for you? When you come home, your dog's like, <laughs> my dog's like spinning around me. My cat's like, forget you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Okay? So here's the deal. For us as as, as Children of God, we have to come to a place, I shared this a couple weeks ago, about we are not the center of the universe. We're not the center. Everything doesn't revolve around us. Jesus is the center and we revolve around him. He's God, we're not. And I'm gonna tell you right now, if you wanna live an insane lifestyle, put yourself in the middle and you'll always be insane. Let's, okay, I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it, ready? You're driving down the road. All right? Somebody cut you off. Okay, now we're, getting, now we're really getting somewhere, okay? Somebody cut you off. And your first thing is, is, is to grip the, the steering wheel really hard, then to roll down the window and let them know that they are your number one fan. And then you sit. Why? Because it's all about you. That was your spot. Don't, don't get me started like in a Walmart parking lot and somebody takes your spot. You'll bust a cap on somebody on that one. Why? Because it's all about you. It's all about me. I'll, 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 I'll share my laundry here. This may seem like a really small deal, but I, I shared this with my guys the other day. God really convicted me on it. So every other day we mix Joel's medicine. We do it in the morning. And uh, for his backpack that he wears all the time. <clears throat> and so two weeks ago, I'm, I'm, before you do that, you have to sterilize everything. It's this huge, it's like an hour-long process. And, and so you got to sterilize everything. you got to have your hands washed and all this stuff. So I'm washing my hands, washing my hands. And I go to get a towel, and I'm drying my, towel, I'm drying my hands off. And my wife, Lindsay, looks at me, and she says, you didn't wash your hands long enough. And I could feel it from my feet rising. I am a 32-year-old grown man. I know how to wash my hands. And so I, I, I didn't even say anything. Just threw my towel in, and I went, and I sat down. I started mixing his medicine, and she didn't need to say anything because the Holy Spirit started. And he said, you arrogant fool. All your wife cares about 
is that Joel gets the best care. And all you care about is your pride. So I had to finish making his medicine, put it on, and then go with my tail between my legs to my wife and apologize. Now, for some of you, that might not seem like a big deal. And to be honest with you, it's not. But it's the little things that make a big difference. And if we don't listen to the Holy Spirit in the little things, eventually we won't be able to hear the Holy Spirit in the big things. And so my prayer over these past couple of weeks and what I've been teaching our guys is I want to hear the Holy Spirit in those small moments so that way I don't have to get major correction in the big moments. Y'all with me? But it's pride. It's me over you. It's putting, elevating myself over you. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. It says this, For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though you were, you were not a gift? Meaning that everything that we have is God's. And I'm going to tell you, the attitude that brings prosperity and peace to your soul is gratitude. It's gratitude. You know, some of you, we're going to do tithe and offering, maybe, well, we are, not maybe, later. Some of you may give, and you may give with this thought, well, I'm just blessing the kingdom. No, you're not. Because it's not yours in the first place. It's his. If he wanted all of it, he would have taken it all. But he gives you the option to give. Because here's the deal. Listen, everybody listen to me. Grace is on him. Gratitude is on you. Grace is given by Jesus. But gratitude is given by us. And so we have to make the choice to be a grateful kingdom. Everything that you have, the money you have in your bank account, the job that you have, the car that you drove here with, the clothes that you wear, the house that you have, and the kids that you have are his. And everything is on loan. And when God says, hey, can I have some of those back? I hope we wouldn't go, this is mine. Like your three-year-old child does to you. When you buy them some chips and you ask for some and you go, if you only knew, I bought all of that. Why? Because it's yours. And you're asking for something back that's already yours. And that's what God does. Everything that we have is his. Now look at Daniel chapter 4. Look again in verse 26. Now watch what's going to happen. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed from you. Now this is... Point number three. Now watch this. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that what? Who rules? Heaven rules. So here's the last pride warning sign that we have to be careful of. When we think we know best instead of acknowledging that heaven rules. When we think we know best instead of acknowledging that heaven rules. See, when we deal with self-sufficiency instead of God-dependency, we need to go to prayer. When we think that everything that, that, when we understand that everything that we have is God's, we do that through thankfulness and worship. But the final problem is that oftentimes we think we rule, and the truth is, heaven rules. That's the truth. See, in our culture that we live in nowadays, they want to change the rules because they think they know better. We're a more progressive society, as they would say. You know, the Bible is a bit outdated. 
And the things that Jesus says in those days are for that time in history, but you know what? We are a more sophisticated generation now, and, and so we know a little bit better of, of how things are to work. And the further, I'm going to tell you this, the further we get away from God's word, the more insanity you will see in this culture. Amen. And we're seeing it now. We're seeing it now. The further we get away and think we know best. Now, here's the thing that I always tell people all the time when they think, well, I, I know better than God. So here's my thing. I asked them, was there something that you subscribed to five years ago that you thought was the way to do things? Let's say five, you know, five years ago that you thought was just awesome. I mean, let's just take a picture of the way we dressed five to 10 years ago. Has that changed? Okay, some of y'all are still dressing like 10 years ago, so for some of y'all it hasn't, but for others of you, it's changed. Hairstyles changed, ideas have changed. The way, how, many, how many say the way you parented five years ago or 10 years ago, even 10 years later, has changed? You've learned things. Things that, you know why? Because as humans, we're always evolving, we're always learning, we're always growing. We change, but God doesn't change. So here's my thing. If you think that you know how God works and how this is supposed to work now, what's to say in five years, ago, five years from now that doesn't change? If you look at Darwin, you look at a lot of these guys in the evolution theory, guess what? Even their theories have changed over time. You know why? Because you don't know it all. Heaven rules. You don't. And so God's word never changes. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is, it is what has, has grounded Christians 2,000 years ago, and it's what grounded, grounds us and, and brings us confidence in our faith 2,000 years later. Are y'all with me? God's word is still the same, and it never changes. And so why do we try to change the word? Well, we try to change the word because we want the word to be what we want it to say. We make the word say what we want it to say, to fit for our lives and how we want. So what we do is we go into the word to read things that will tailor to our lifestyle instead of taking our lifestyle and bringing it to the word and letting the word define how we're supposed to live. Are y'all with me? So the Bible says this is how you're supposed to do your marriage. Husbands, lay down your wives for lay down your life for your wife. Love her as Christ loved the church. And eh, I don't really like that. I'll love her like I like ice cream. Is that good? You know, I'm gonna change this up a little bit. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Mm, not, not big on that one. All right, let's change that one up a little bit. Children, honor your parents in the Lord for this is right. Mm, not good on that one. Let's change that one up a little bit. Honor your parents in the Lord when only they do the things that you like. Okay, that sounds a lot better. You, you see how we do it? We take things and we subtly change them a little bit to fit what we want them to say. We think that we know best instead of acknowledging that heaven rules. There's a verse that says this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, that's point number one, and seek my face, that's point number two, and turn from their wicked ways, that's point number three, this is what God will do. He says, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. Come on, how many want that for our place, for our land, for our church, for our families? So let's wrap this up. How is sanity restored? Look in verse 28. Now here's what happened. 
All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof. Now this is actually what's going to happen. This is his humiliation. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of the Babylon. And the king answered and said, now watch what he says. Is not this great Babylon, which who's built? Which I have built by whose power? My mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. While the words, now watch this. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. Now this had to be crazy. All for my glory. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Now watch this, verse 33. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and he ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. That is gross. It's gross. Now watch this, verse 34. At the end of the days... Now, this is, remember, this is Nebuchadnezzar sharing his own story. I, Nebuchadnezzar. So this is at the end of seven years. Now, I want you to notice this just real quick. Between the time that Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of this, of this tree, and Daniel gave him the prophecy that, listen, that is you. You're the tree. It's going to be cut down. That's going to be you. From the tree dream to the time that this actually happened was a year. God gave Nebuchadnezzar a year to make things right. And he didn't. So therefore, this happened. Now watch what happens now. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised him and honored him whose lives, who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at the same time, my reason returned to me for the glory. Now watch this. In the instant that he repented and turned back to the Lord, watch what happened. And at the same time, my reason returned to me for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, King Nebuchadnezzar, praise. Now watch this. Watch how his, his lyrics have changed a little bit here. I praise and I extol and I honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. How is sanity restored in our lives? If your life has been insane, there's no peace in your heart. There's no peace in your soul. Here's how it it gets restored. Ready? Number one, we exalt the king of heaven. God deserves genuine, heartfelt worship. I talked about this last week when we talked about loving the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul. That means our emotions, that that we would be expressive in our worship. That's why when we stand over here on the stage and say, lift your voice to the Lord, give him the praise that he is worthy. And we tell you, that's not to try to pump things up. That's because that's biblical, 
Because the Bible says to clap your hands unto the Lord. Do you know that? Put these babies to work. Let the Lord know who he is. To lift your hands in the sanctuary. To bless the Lord. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Thank you for two people that say that's right. But it seems awkward for us to do that. But yet it doesn't seem awkward for us to do that in any other environment except church. God, I pray that we would exalt the king for all that he is worth. We should give him what he deserves. And he deserves every praise that we have. I, listen, one of these days, and I'm speaking this prophetically, one of these days, I pray that the celebration in this room will be much louder than Jerry Simmons Stadium. I pray that it would be much louder than Death Valley. I pray that the, that, the, that the anthem that comes out of this room would be so much louder than anywhere else because we serve a God who raised us from the dead. It's not about emotionalism. It's not what it's about. Listen, if the Bible said to stick out your tongue and jump on one foot, that's what he wants you to do. But thank God he doesn't tell us to do that. He says, clap your hands and shout unto the Lord. He says to lift your voices and to bless them. And if you want sanity restored, I'm, I'm just going to tell you right now, because I've seen this happen. A lot of times our hands are an indication of our heart. And so when you come into worship and you can't lift your hands, you know why? Because your heart is not where it needs to be. And if you were honest, you would know. The reason you have a hard time lifting your hands is because your heart is not connected to Jesus. Because as soon as it connects with him, you will have no problem raising your hands because you'll realize what he's done for you. He's done everything for you. So our worship, because I believe as we, we, we don't sing four songs in here just because we're trying to fill time. Y'all understand that, right? Like, we're not trying to fill time here. Some people come in after worship's over. And I tell them all the time, you're missing out. You're missing out. Because you know what? Worship prepares you to receive the word of God. Because a lot of times, worship is an opportunity for you to get your heart where it needs to be to hear from God. And if you miss that, guess what? You come into a place and you're not ready. So you come in and you sit in here for an hour or two, and then you walk out and you're not changed. Because worship is an opportunity for us to read the words on the screen and then for that to do something inside of us. And I pray that as you read those words on the screen, peace is restored into your soul. Because how many of you know for six days, a lot of times there's no peace. It's sanity, insanity. And so to come into church and to find peace, find peace by exalting the Lord. Number two, we acknowledge that God does everything right and all his ways are just. Listen, we need to stop trying to figure out God. God has never asked for you to try to figure him out. All he's asked for you to do is obey him. You don't have to understand why. I'm going to tell you right now, I have a lot of questions on why things happen. A lot. But that does not stop me from worshiping him. Because everything that he does is right. 
and all his ways are right. And I believe that peace will come back into your life when you build your life on God's word and what he says you're supposed to do. If you'll just do what he says to do, I believe peace will come back into your soul. And then last but not least, and this I think is sometimes the hardest one, is to walk in humility. Walk in humility. See, most people think humility is thinking less of yourself. Like, oh, poor me. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking less of yourself. I mean, thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Here's what God has been challenging me, really, in this past month. We did a study with a bunch of guys in the book of James. And in the book of James, in James chapter 4, James talks about humility. And he says, humble yourselves and humble yourselves before others. Come on, how, let's, if we were honest, humility is the hardest when it comes to others. Like if nobody was in my life, I'm a pretty humble guy. But when I, I'm, I'm married. And every husband in here that's been married or is married understands that if the greatest pride exposer is a wife, And if you don't know that, then you haven't been married long enough. Because if there's anybody that'll expose your pride more, it's your wife. And then if your wife doesn't do it, your children will take care of it for you. They will. And if there's anywhere my pride has been exposed the most, it's at home. None of y'all see it. But my kids do. And my wife does. And the Bible says this, for us to humble ourselves... Because here's the deal. There's two options. Ready? We'll wrap it up with this. You can humble yourselves or God can humble you. That's the two options we got. And I, and, I'm, and I hate to say this because he's had to do the second option on me a lot of times. Is the second option often requires humiliation. See, because here's the deal. If we won't humble ourselves and expose our sin... Our sin will expose us and humiliate us. So the more I can be humble and say, yes, I battle with that. Yes, I was prideful. Yes, I didn't wash my hands long enough. I was prideful. And we've got to be a people who walk in humility. God, I pray that we would be a people who walk in humility. Now, I'm not saying that God's going to make you like an ox. He might. Maybe some of y'all are checking your fingernails right now. But I believe this. I believe if you walk in pride long enough, your life is insane. That I can guarantee. I can guarantee your marriage is insane. Ain't nothing worse for a marriage than pride. Ain't nothing worse for a family than pride. But where humility is, there's grace. And where there's grace, there's peace. And I want peace for you. I want peace in your soul. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, I pray, Lord, over each person here. God, we we acknowledge today that uh, we 
are often prideful people. But God, I pray that we would be people who pursue humility because Jesus was humble. And Jesus is the greatest example of humility that he laid his life down for us, that he constantly laid his life down for others. And Jesus, I pray right now, Lord, that we would acknowledge our dependency on you. We would acknowledge that everything we have is from you. And we acknowledge that heaven rules, that I don't rule, heaven rules. And Jesus, I pray that you would do whatever you have to do to remind your people in this place that you're God. We can't be God. We're terrible at it. But you're great at it. And God, I believe, Lord, that there are people in this place right now, God, that that today is going to be a day for them. And maybe you've, there's been insanity in their heart and in their soul. And I believe, God, that they're not here by accident, but you want to restore peace in their soul. God, I pray, Lord, that that would happen today.